The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure that we are uh, in fellowship with the Lord, where we are not grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, where we are in a position where the Holy Spirit can take that which we learn, drive it home to us in terms of application, and use it for our own spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer that I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your grace toward us is beyond measure. We can scarcely comprehend all that is involved in what you have done for us. For too often the failure is on our part that we do not contemplate profoundly enough that which occurred when Adam sinned. And as a result of not fully appreciating the depths of our depravity and the scope of the fall, we do not fully understand and appreciate all that you have done for us in sending your Son to die as our substitute. But, Father, to the degree that we appreciate this, we are indeed grateful, and that with our so great salvation, you have provided us the Holy Spirit who empowers us, guides and directs us. He has not only been involved in the communication of your word, its inscripturation, its preservation, but also the illumination and the retention of it in our own souls. Now, fathers, we give attention to what you have for us, to what you have addressed through the uh, words of Scripture to us in this modern day. We pray that you would help us to see the application and that we would not shirk back from what the Holy Spirit teaches us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Revelation chapter 3 in the seven letters to the seven churches. Now, these seven churches that are addressed in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 are churches that represent the seven basic types of congregations that exist during the church age. The church age began in 
uh, on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33 approximately and has extended through the present up until the Lord Jesus Christ will return in the clouds for the church, at which time the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we will ever be with the Lord. That is the doctrine known as the rapture of the church. During the church age, there are a number of different trends that take place. Now, there are those that look at these uh, seven churches as seven stages in the unfolding of God's plan as you go down through church history. And there are those that attempt to fit these churches into different periods of church history. And they would say that we are now in the age of Laodicea. But some also say that there are those churches still persist that are like the church at Philadelphia. And that basically indicates the problem with that interpretation. You'll find it a lot of places. And there are a number of dispensationalists who take that interpretation. The problem is no two of them, to my knowledge, uh, periodize those uh, sections of history in the same in the same way. You don't see an unfolding of, first of all, we're in the church of Ephesus, then you're in the church of Smyrna, then the church of uh, Pergamum, then Thyatira, then Sardis, and then uh, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. It doesn't go that way. In every generation, in every era, there may be one uh, of these churches that is most characteristic of that age, but there are congregations that are similar to all of these. These are trends as opposed to consecutive uh, cycles down through history. So when we look at these, what we see is a divine evaluation report of the churches or an ecclesiastical evaluation report where the Lord Jesus Christ is evaluating these local congregations. And he is telling them that which is good and that which is bad. And of these seven uh, short evaluation reports, uh, five have uh, uh, something good to say. All of them have something, well, five of them have something uh, good to say. Two have nothing bad to say. Two have nothing good to say. In other words, there are two congregations that are in bad shape, and there's nothing positive about them, and this last one is one of those, the Church of Laodicea. There are also two that have nothing negative said about them. They are uh, praised for where they are spiritually. And when we come to this last one, the what is called the lukewarm church, the Church of the Laodiceans, we have a number of fascinating things to uh, discuss as we go through this particular evaluation report. And as we look at this, we'll come to a, a greater appreciation of why we should take the spiritual life seriously. And we, there is a strong call in this particular evaluation report for us to look diligently at our own spiritual life and not to become complacent believers. There are times in our spiritual life, I think, when certain doctrines really slap us in the face as if someone threw a bucket of cold water on us as we were waking up in the morning. And I'll never forget the first time I became conscious of verses, uh, of verse 16, rather. I was probably about 20 or 21 years of age, and I'm sure I had heard this before, but I don't have any recollection. And one day I was in Bible class, and I heard this verse, and it was just 
I mean, it was one of those things that just grabs you. And in that verse, well, very well-known verse, the Lord Jesus Christ says to the church of Laodicea, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And I thought, boy, that's one of the last things I would want the Lord Jesus Christ to ever say about my life, is that I was just a complacent, lukewarm believer. But unfortunately, that is a trend of this generation in which we live, that there are there is as much church activity and church involvement and church membership today, percentage-wise, per capita-wise, in the United States as perhaps at any time in our history. And yet the actual application of do- doctrine, beyond that, the knowledge of doctrine, is far worse than it has ever been in the history of this nation. It is... Uh, a situation that reminds me of what Paul warns about in Second Timothy chapter 3 as he talks about also the trends that will take place in the church age. And he talks about the last days. Now, you have to understand in Scripture there are two periods of last days. People get confused about that. There are the last days that relate to God's plan for Israel. And those last days relate primarily to what happens during the period of the tribulation. Then there is the period of the last days of the church, and that's not a time period that refers to just those final years or generations or decades of the church age, but all of the church age is described as the latter days because the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. It can happen at any time. So these passages, like Second Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 6, are passages that describe trends that will take place during the church age, but I believe they will increase by the end of the age. There Paul writes, I know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. This particularly applies to the trend that we see in the church of Laodicea. They were an extremely wealthy church, as we'll see. The boasters, proud, blasphemous, they are It describes this trend in the latter days that men are self-reliant. They think they can do it all without God. Uh, Disobedient to parents, a problem with authority. I don't know of anything that quite characterizes our generation as, as that phrase. In fact, one of the things that has happened in evangelicalism in the last 30 or 40 years is Uh, I'm sad to say the input of the baby boom generation. This has been a tragic, a tragedy in the history of this nation, not only in terms of the culture at large, but also in terms of uh, evangelicalism. There have been many changes that have taken place in the last 40 years because of the arrogance of the baby boom generation, thinking that they define everything. They're the most spoiled group of people. We, shall I say, are the most spoiled brats in history. And uh, I remember reading uh, analyses of the baby boom generation some 15 or 20 years ago and comparing it to a pig going through a python. As that it's, it's this huge group of people that just move, it's like, move through history from 
the late 40s up through the, the present. If you're a member of the baby boom generation, you know it because you were, you were born during a population or a birth uh, growth rate that began on approximately January the 5th, 1946, and ended in 1963. How do you know that? Because if you look at the at a graph of the birth rate in nineteen in the nineteen forties, it was relatively flat until nine months to the day after VE Day, the when the Allies defeated Germany. And the birth rate just goes like this on a graph. It just just goes straight up and it stays high. It, it birth rate just about tripled or quadrupled for a period of almost 20 years, and then in 1963 it did a nosedive. So it's very clear when you look at the, at the numbers and the statistics that there's this huge bubble of birth, and so sociologists will come along, they'll divide the um, baby boomers into the early, middle, and, and late boomers, and there are different characteristics, and it's a fascinating thing to study and how it impacts our culture. But it's impacted the church in a lot of ways because the, um, these baby boomers were characterized by a lack of authority orientation. And, I, and back in the late 60s, uh, there was a rebellion against establishment, and there was uh, protesting the war in Vietnam, and so everybody had to be... Uh, uh, had to show how they were nonconformists, so all the men had to grow long hair, and all the uh, uh, women burned their bras, and all this stuff was going on. Well, within the Christian community, there was sort of a limitation on just how Christians could express their anti-authoritarianism. What was interesting was how that happened in the seminaries. I was at Dallas Seminary during that period, and what was popular was for students to go against the tradition of the fathers of the seminary. So they would either become hyper-Calvinists or high-Calvinists, five-point super-lapsarian Calvinists, or they would go into covenant theology and reject dispensationalism. At the counterpart to Dallas Seminary, which was Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, which was the Calvinist seminary, they they uh, started rejecting amillennialism and going to postmillennialism and then theonomy and then preterism. So you had all of these different things happening. You also had, coming out of the baby boom generation, the rise of what is known now as contemporary Christian worship music. And a lot of folks like that because that fits their taste because their musical taste was developed by the music, the culture they listened to, 50s music, 60s music, from the Beatles all the way up uh, through, through the 80s. And they wanted to sing music like that when it came to church. But what it was was a rebellion and a rejection of that which had been traditional in the church, not just because it was traditional, but these traditional Christian hymnology uh, it, it's a mixed bag. It's not really, I, whenever I talk about music, I try to make people understand it's not an issue of old versus new. It is an issue of form and function. 
both. It is content and the form of music because the music that shaped much, not all, there's some lousy older music, trust me. There's some, some terrible revival music that came out of the revivalistic period in the mid-19th century. It's shallow, it's repetitive, just as bad as most of the stuff that's coming out today. But music reflects cultural presuppositions. And what we saw happening in the 60s and 70s is we don't want to worship like our parents worship. It's just another manifestation. We don't want to do anything like our parents did. It was anti-authoritarianism. So this just just shaped everything, and it's so radically changed the culture of, of, of the church in America today. And we're exporting this through our missions, and it's terrible. But what happens in, in a normal, you go to many especially larger churches in this city or in this country today, and if if people, if solid Bible-believing conservative believers from the 20s or 30s were to put be, be transported in time and plot down into those congregations that many people think are the most spiritual today, they would be appalled. They would they would see because they didn't go through this gradual immersion of the culture, they would see how pagan the culture of the church has become because it has absorbed the value system in numerous ways of the culture around it. And sadly to say, that's typical of the church throughout the centuries is that people who are in the church come out of the culture at large. And so it is only to be expected that in the church of each generation, each century, there will be a reflection of the culture at large. So we know that during the last days, Second uh, Timothy 3 says, Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. They're ungrateful. They don't have a sense of gratitude. They have a sense of entitlement, a sense of privilege, a sense of this is what we ought to have, and that is so characteristic today. goes on to say, Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, Headstrong, and I want you to notice this last phrase, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that is so true today. We live in a world where people are more concerned about immediate gratification and emotional stimulation rather than learning about God because that takes time and discipline. And the conclusion that Paul has is that they have a form of godliness. And that word for godliness is a word that we could translate a spiritual life. They have a form of spirituality that has all the trappings and verbiage of biblical Christianity. It says they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Turn away from such people. But that is so characteristic, and it, it is a great summation of the culture in the church of Laodicea. Now, before we get into the details of the church of Laodicea, I want to just review a few things that are characteristic of these letters to these seven churches. Each begins with a description of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have seen. And these descriptions take us back to the original vision that John had 
of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Isle of Patmos. So just hold your place there in Revelation chapter 3. Turn back a couple of pages and let me just remind you of what happened back in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 are a direct outgrowth of what happens in chapter 1, and so we need to just uh, remind ourselves of, of what happened there. John uh, has his salutation to the seven churches beginning in verse 4, and he says, Grace to you and peace from, and then you have a triune statement. This salutation tells us that this revelation, this unveiling, the apocalypsis, comes from, is a Trinitarian revelation. It comes from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grace to you and peace from Father, from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, a lot of people misidentify that phrase because they think, well, Jesus is coming back. So that's got to be Jesus. But as I pointed out when we went through our study of that verse, the who is to come applies to the Father because in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, it is the Father who comes in the new heavens and new earth to make his dwelling with men. And that's why this applies to the Father beyond the fact that it says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the only person who has a throne until the last chapter is the Father. So who, uh, what, the one who is and who was and who is to come is sitting on a throne. That can only be the Father. And then the seven spirits who are before his throne is a reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And then from Jesus Christ. And we see uh, the titles related to Jesus Christ here that, that directly relate to what is referred to in Revelation uh, 3.14. The faithful Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, indicating his resurrection, the ruler of the kings of the earth, his future position as the sovereign uh, king of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins by means of his own blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So this is the salutation, and it is those Titles that are ascribed to Jesus Christ, that he is the uh, faithful uh, witness, the firstborn from the dead, that form background for Revelation chapter 3. And then when John sees the Lord, he's there on Patmos, and he describes this vision that uh, took place there, that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard a loud voice like a trumpet. He turned and he, uh, he looked and... He saw the voice that spoke to him, and he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these seven golden lampstands, one like a son of man who was clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about with a uh, golden band, which is a picture of the, the robe of a priest. But he is pictured as a priest who is bringing judgment. And then there's the description of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's a uh, you, can, we, you can do an analysis of each of the details, but overall there's this brilliant, glowing whiteness. I mean, everything about this description is that it's almost a blinding light, and he can barely make out the details of the Lord in the midst of this brilliant, piercing, bright light. He's described as, he's like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. How brilliant must that have appeared? And his hair is white as snow, his eyes like a faint flame of fire, his feet like fine brass refined in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. And then as we go through this, we come to the uh, commissioning of John in verses 19 and 
uh, 20, where we get the interpretation of the seven stars and seven lampstands. And the Lord Jesus Christ says in verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So there's this distinction made between the angel and the Church. So we have looked at the fact that what these angels refer to are supernatural heavenly beings associated with the courtroom, the heavenly courtroom of, of, of God. So we come to our salutation in Revelation 3.14, and we read, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. See, that's that same phrase we pick up from uh, Revelation 1, 5, and 6. The beginning of the creation of God. And this first phrase that gives us the uh, recipient of this evaluation report is to the angel of the church in Laodicea. And we've studied this in the past. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we have done that in the past. And you can go back and listen to the extensive studies on how that this relates to the angelic conflict. But there are generally three views that are set forth in terms of interpreting this word angelos, translated angel of the church in Laodicea. The first interpretation is that these are human messengers from John to each church. John's on the Isle of Patmos, and so he sends human messengers carrying the scroll of the entire uh, book of Revelation to each of these uh, congregations. The second view that is set forth is that the angelos, the angel of each of these churches, should be translated messenger, and refers to the human pastor of each of these congregations. And there are several folks who take that view I do not believe either one of those views can be substantiated on the basis of the usage of the word. And that's how things always have to be done, is how are the words used. And if you look at the book of Revelation, the word angelos is used some 64, 65 times, and with the exception of eight uses, and those are the eight that are in question. We're trying to figure out what those eight refer to. There's one use there in Revelation 1.20 I just mentioned, and then one for each of the uh, seven letters to the seven churches. So those eight are the ones that are in question. So you can't go there. You can't define a word with itself, in the same, in, and you can't uh, figure out what angelos means by going to the passage that's under investigation as your source of, of definition. So you have to go elsewhere. And when we look through the book of Revelation, what we discover is that every other time that this word is used, it refers to a supernatural being created by God, serving and worshiping God in the heavens. And so angelos is always used that way. So we have to find uh, compelling evidence from the context to interpret it any other way. The next step that I did was to look at how angels function and operate within the book of Revelation, and we see that they are used by God to carry out his evaluation and judgment upon the earth. Now, if we take that same concept of those who are working out and carrying out the decrees from the courtroom of God and and seeing how they're applied in history, and we apply that to these uh, angels, then it makes perfect sense. What's going on here is that these angels 
have a correlation, have an assignment to each of these congregations. And they are, as it were, the heavenly court reporters who are keeping records on how each congregation performs. And then they are, in turn, uh, being used in carrying out the, because there's a warning of judgment several of these, carrying out the judgment upon these congregations, or indeed the blessing, if indeed that is uh, applicable. And so it is these angels that are keeping records in the heavenly books of each congregation. And so this also fits with the general tone of Scripture where you would have, for example, in Deuteronomy many times, uh, Moses calls upon heaven and earth to witness uh, uh, the law of Moses. Now, he's not calling upon the heavens in terms of the uh, physical bodies that exist in the heavens, the stars and space and that sort of thing. He's talking about the inhabitants of the heavens, and the inhabitants of the heavens are the angels, and he calls upon the inhabitants of the earth to be a witness, to be a testimony to what is being set forth in this legal document of the Mosaic contract or the Deuteronomic code, which is a restatement of the Mosaic law. So we have precedent all the way through Scripture that the angels are used as these courtroom uh, reporters and giving evidence and testimony to the grace and glory of God within history. So it, the uh, just like the other six, this seventh letter is addressed to the uh, angels, the heavenly court reporter, he, who would also function, I've said in the past, something like a U.S. federal marshal in a courtroom, uh, carrying out writs, carrying out uh, arrest warrants, things of that nature. So the, the, these angels had a, a wide variety of operations, somewhat analogous to these functions within a modern uh, American courtroom. So it is addressed to the Church of Laodicea. And Laodicea is located, as you see here on the overhead, over in this area, just about 40 miles to the southeast of Philadelphia and approximately 100 miles to the east of Ephesus. Originally, let's get into a little history on the church of Laodicea and the town of Laodicea. Originally, the site was occupied by an ancient town known as Diospolis, or which means the city of Zeus, or it was also called Roas. That's spelled R-H-O-A-S, Roas. And it, this town or village or settlement was destroyed during the Greek invasions at the time of Alexander the Great in the mid-4th century B.C. It was later rebuilt by Antiochus II. For those of you who don't have your Greek history right on the tip of your brain this morning, Remember that it was around 330 B.C. that Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world at that time. He conquered Macedonia, united, the, then he invaded Greece, united uh, the various Greek states, and then he headed east. He conquered what we now know of as Turkey, and then he went down through the Levant, down through Syria, Palestine, conquered Israel, went down, conquered Egypt, then he headed further east and conquered the Persians and headed all the way to the Indus River before he stopped. He died at the age of 33 as a drunk, syphilitic, uh, overindulged, uh, brilliant uh, commander who just sacrificed his life on his own pleasures. But he was a brilliant conqueror. When he died at such a young age, his kingdom, his empire was split four ways. Uh, Lysimachus, who was a Greek general, took over uh, the area of Greece 
and uh, Antiochus took over the area of Syria, Palestine, and Turkey. And there were a number of wars that took place in Turkey between the Greeks and Lysimachus and the Antiochenes over who exactly would control most of this particular real estate. In uh, 250 B.C., Antiochus II uh, founded this particular city because of its uh, strategic location, and he named it for his wife, Laodice. Unfortunately, they were divorced a few years later, but he allowed the city to keep his name. How gracious of him. As I pointed out a minute ago, geographically, the city is located some 40 miles to the southeast of Philadelphia and 100 miles uh, to the east of Ephesus. Its geography is quite important, not only to understand what the dynamics were in the city itself, but also the interpretation of the passage. As we've seen in our other studies, the Lord takes things that are characteristics of each of these towns and weaves them into his evaluation report. The city was situated on a plateau about 100 feet above the Lycus River Valley. Actually, two uh, rivers come together and merge together in this particular area, which provided, in the early days, water from these streams and rivers, but it wasn't enough water to uh, really uh, supply the needs of a large settlement. So that was a major issue, as we'll see, in Laodicea. It was located on a central east-west highway. I believe I have highways marked on this particular map. It's located on a major uh, east-west highway. Here it is located down here. I've got that circle in the wrong place. Um, It's located down here on this major east-west highway that goes from uh, Ephesus in the west and goes through Laodicea and then heads off through Phrygia and on into the inland of the uh, what is now modern modern Turkey. From the north, we have another crossroads. It comes down from Philadelphia up to the north, comes down through Heropolis, just to the north of Laodicea, through Laodicea, down to Colossae, and then on down toward Pamphylia and on to the Mediterranean coast in the south. As we see from this map, it's located in uh, very close proximity to two other cities that have biblical significance, Heropolis, which was uh, six miles to the north, and Colossae, which is ten miles to the south. These are important because both Heropolis and Colossae become the source for their water. They, they, they didn't have, as, as the city grew, they didn't have enough water, so they had to pipe in hot and cold water from these uh, neighboring uh, cities. The population of Laodicea, because it was founded by the Syrians under Antiochus, uh, when Roman, uh, the Roman Empire conquered this area, it was further colonized by Roman citizens. So it's got a mixed population, cosmopolitan city of, of Romans, Phrygians, Syrians, and a number of Jews. In terms of religion, there's less evidence here of a strong religious operation. It wasn't as important to the culture, although there are some temples there. There was a temple to an ancient Phrygian deity by the name of Min Karu, that's M E N 
K-A-R-O-U. It's two words, men, karu, K-A-R-O-U. And this temple merged with the temple to Asclepius. And if you're familiar with the uh, medical practice, Asclepius was the Greek god of healing. And so there was a very famous uh, medical school in in uh, Laodicea at that time, and they developed a famous powder called the Phrygian powder, and they would mix this into a salve, and it was used for healing problems with the eyes and problems with the ears. And, of course, this becomes significant because Jesus uh, says in his uh, evaluation of this, this uh, congregation at the end of verse 18, he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve. See, he's picking up these cultural overtones in order to challenge them to spiritual to a spiritual commitment. Now the basic even though this city is located on a major crossroads down here, you would think it had great military significance. What a strategic location. But having a location like this was uh, they lost their advantage because of the problem with no internal water supply. So they had to bring in cold water from Colossae, and they had to bring in, there we go, there's Laodicea. They had to, that's a little out of focus because, unfortunately, when I expand these maps, you lose some of the uh, uh, density of the pixels, and so it gets a little fuzzy. But that gives you the idea of how it's, uh, how it's uh, located in relationship to Hierapolis and Colossae. Colossae, of course, is where the epistle, Paul wrote his epistle to the Colossians. This gives you an idea of what the location looks like today. This is the tell located uh, here in the middle of the picture. It's a rather flat plain. There aren't a lot of remains there uh, archaeologically today. There are a few things located there. This shows a bridge over the Lycus River that was uh, there in town, so you get a little different perspective of the topography. Here is a piece of the aqueduct, one of the aqueducts that were built to move water from Heropolis and Colossae down to Laodicea. Here are some other uh, remains of the aqueduct. Uh, the water source was uh, underground, so they had quite an engineering feat which uh, had been developed in order to uh, move this water. Here's a picture of some of the pipes with uh, uh, calcium that's embedded in them, that uh, the mineral deposits from the water that had moved through there. Colossae it looks something like this, and this is the Colossian tell in the center of the picture, and then here is a picture of the streams of cold water coming down from the mountains. These were then piped down to Laodicea. Heropolis has much greater, more extensive ruins. This gives you a picture of the main street in Heropolis and Domitian's Gate, and just show you how advanced they really were. And they had quite a civilization there as a result of the tremendous building that, that the Romans did. But this water problem is significant because that forms the background for the Lord's famous critique in verses 15 and 16. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. That was Laodicea was famous for this because they piped in the cold water from Colossae. And they had hot springs in Heropolis, and they piped in the hot water from Heropolis. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot, 
and it wasn't cold. It was lukewarm, and it made you bilious. And so the Lord takes that cultural analogy and turns it around and slams them with it. And so that helps us to understand just the significance of that particular uh, metaphor. Three other things that we ought to note is characteristics of the city that give us insight into interpreting this particular evaluation. The city was incredibly wealthy. Because it couldn't align itself with any of the political movements, because it just, without a water supply, couldn't withstand a long-term siege, they had to be like the Swiss and be fairly neutral. And like the Swiss, they also developed a significant system of banking, and nearby there were a number of gold deposits, and so gold mining was prevalent in the area. And so a banking and financial center grew up in uh, Laodicea that was central for the uh, economy of the western part of uh, what it, uh, of the uh, of Asia Minor, as we would call it in the ancient world. It was a major mercantile and trade center. It sits on a crossroad. They uh, remained neutral, so the money that was there kept in the temples was fairly safe. Unfortunately, they had a problem, as most of this area in the ancient world has, with fault lines, and the city was almost completely destroyed twice in the first century A.D., in A.D. 17, and again in A.D. 61, the city was just about wiped out because of uh, major earthquakes. But unlike Hierapolis and Colossae and Philadelphia and these other cities that relied upon government handouts from the Roman Empire, you just thought government handouts were something new, they insisted on handling their own problems with their own financial resources. This indicates that they had a tremendous civic pride and self-reliance, which is good in some cases, but it can be bad when it indicates your spiritual characteristic. This is why the Lord says in verse 17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. See, it made them complacent with regard to their dependence upon the Lord in terms of providing their needs. So they had tremendous wealth. In fact, um, uh, one of the things related to this is that in 62 B.C., the Roman um, governor of Asia refused to allow the Jews who lived in uh, the province of Asia to send their annual tithe to Jerusalem, and he confiscated it for the, uh, for the Roman Empire. And we have the records of that, though, and the amount indicates that the population of Jews in the Laodicean area was somewhere around 7,500. So that tells us there was a large Jewish population. And remember Paul's principle of taking the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The area was also noted for its wool production. And here we have a picture of some of the sheep in a modern context. And you notice that there are mostly white sheep there and two black sheep. Well, in the ancient world, they were known for the production of the wool from these black sheep. And they had a breed of black sheep that produced a rich, glossy wool that was highly prized in the ancient world and very expensive. They produced from this black wool uh, ex very expensive cloth 
and carpets that were owned by only the most uh, wealthy in the Roman Empire. They were status symbols in the ancient world to possess uh, clothing that was manufactured from this black wool. They would produce extremely expensive, seamless garments from this black wool. And, of course, this provides a little background for understanding the statement Jesus makes down in verse uh, 18. Uh, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, not black garments. So all these little statements that we find in this evaluation report play off of uh, historical realities. And the third thing we ought to note, the first was their wealth, the second was their wool production, the third is the production of this ISAV that, was, uh, that they were known for throughout the ancient world. The gospel probably came to Laodicea by uh, Epaphras, according to Colossians 1.7. We don't have a specific statement there, but Epaphras was sent by Paul to take the gospel into this area. He was sent to Colossae, which, of course, was only 10 miles away. So the indications that we have from the epistle of the Colossians is that he took the gospel to this particular area. It's a great indication of the importance of missions. You go back and study that part of Acts. What we discover is that the Holy Spirit originally prevented Paul from taking the gospel to Asia. Now, that is hard for us to factor into our theology sometimes, but as Paul was uh, going through his second missionary journey, he left He went uh, left from uh, Antioch of Syria, and he journeyed first to the province of, uh, of uh, Galatia, where he had taken the gospel on the first trip to Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, and he revisited his converts there and the churches that were established there, and then he left to take the gospel into the uh, eastern province of Asia, but the Holy Spirit uh, prevented him in some way, gave him either special revelation or circumstances, said, you know, no, you're not to take the gospel here, I have something else for you to do. And so we, we sometimes don't understand why there may be a wonderful thing for us to do at a particular time in life, but God says, no, that's not what I have for you to do. I have something else for you to do. And so Paul traveled through Asia and on up north, and then when he was approaching the uh, northern part of Asia, as he's coming to the, to the uh, GNC there, he has a vision of a man in across the way in Greece calling for him from Troas to come and bring the gospel. And so he realized that God's mission for him was then to take the gospel into Europe. And he went over to, uh, went over to Thrace and then and Macedonia and then down through Greece. Uh, he went to Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and on down to Corinth. That was between 50, A.D. 50 and A.D. 52. And at the end of that journey, he finally comes to Ephesus. And he comes to Ephesus at the end of that second missionary journey, and he establishes a training school there. And now it's the right time to send the gospel and to take the gospel throughout Asia. And he sets up this training school, and he trains men. That's why it's so important to have training institutions to prepare missionaries and pastors 
It is not optional. It is crucial that men be identified, especially at a young age. The earlier, the better. I remember uh, when I was in high school being challenged by my pastor and recognizing that, that I probably had the gift of pastor-teacher and that that should shape what I did in college and my plans to go on into seminary. And there were a number of other young men my own age who who recognized that same call. Uh, Randy Price is one. I met Randy first the summer after we graduated from from high school, and we both went through. He went to University of Texas. I went to Stephen F. Austin, and then he went immediately into uh, Dallas Seminary, and I followed not uh, far behind. And there were others, and there were many that came out of uh, our church and other churches, uh, Bible churches in Houston, that were going to seminary at that time. And you just don't find that happening today. One of the things is that, that, oh, it's too expensive. And you find men who come along in their late 20s, early 30s, or late 30s, already married and have children, and it's too difficult. And I'm always reminded of a, of a classmate of mine uh, at, at, at Dallas, and he had been accepted actually the year before. I started in the fall of 76. He should have was accepted in the fall of 75. And he said, uh, at our graduation breakfast, he gave his testimony, and he said that he had been accepted in the fall, for the fall of 75, but his wife was got pregnant. And so he didn't think God could provide for him. He didn't know how he could take care of his uh, family and be a student, a full-time student in Dallas Center. Back in those days, they didn't allow you to, they didn't have night courses. They didn't have all this other stuff they have today. Uh, you, you had to pretty much go from 8 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon, and that was it. And so he just didn't know how he could do it. So he decided not to go to seminary. So he continued work, but his wife had a miscarriage sometime that fall. So he decided, ah, the Lord must want me to go to seminary after all. So he reapplied and to begin classes the next September, which was September 76. And so he and I were first-year theology, first-year Greek together, a number of classes. I didn't know him well. Like a lot of students, you just know who these other people are. And I didn't know this story, but when he got up at the, at the, um, and gave his testimony, he said that a month after he began classes that October, the doctor announced that his wife was pregnant with twins. <laughs> and he still graduated on time in four years. And he said, I learned that if God wanted me somewhere, God would provide and one of the things that really bothers me as a pastor is I see too many young men and older men who don't have the faith in God to move halfway across the country and go get a decent seminary education so that they can go be a really good pastor. They've lowered the bar of expectation so much. And see, one of the things you, have, you learn in seminary besides Greek and Hebrew and theology and all those other things is how to trust God to pay the bills each month. And how to trust God to put food on the table. And how to trust God for all the things that you're going to have to deal with when you go out and pastor a church. Because you've got to deal with all those things, except it's even more so. And you learn so much in a seminary environment that you cannot learn by taking online courses. That you cannot learn by uh, watching DVDs. That you cannot learn by taking correspondence courses. And, and yet they shortchange themselves. And it's so tragic that we've lowered the bar of expectation and faith uh, so much. And the result is that there is a 
a, a dearth, a, a, an absence of trained men who want to teach the Word, not preach it, not give shallow sermons, or not be uh, church managers, but who really have a love for the Word and want to teach it today. Somehow, that's been lost. And that's why I'm so dedicated to Chafer Seminary and trying to see that go. But that's what we need. And that's what Paul did. And these young men like Epaphras went out all over Asia Minor and hundreds of thousands of people got saved and they established all, most of these churches that we've seen in these seven letters to seven churches in Sardis and Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and Laodicea are not churches you read about anywhere else in the New Testament, but they were established by those men, men whose names have been lost to history but are inscribed in the heavenly records, men who established those congregations as missionaries. And so Epaphras evangelized the Lycus Valley, including all of these particular areas. Paul never went there, to our knowledge. But he did write an epistle to the church in Colossae. And uh, in Colossians 4, uh, 16, it appears that he also wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, but he never, uh, but it wasn't part of Scripture. It was not kept. It was not to be canonical. But they did get that, and they were to share and to give copies of their epistles to one another. So we come to the outline of this thing. We'll just review it to get the overview before we get into details next week. There's the opening address or commission to the Church of Laodicea in verse 14. Then there's a reference to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referred to as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. These character attributes, these, these uh, uh, attributes that are ascribed to Christ here are crucial as understanding what is said in, the, uh, in this evaluation report and why it's said the way it is. There's no condemnation or commendation, rather, in this particular evaluation. There's no praise. There's no spiritual advance. Rather, there's a condemnation. They're lukewarm. They're complacent. They're not very positive. They have a form of spirituality. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of involvement. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. There is no real enthusiasm for biblical doctrine and for spiritual application. But there is a cor- And there's a correction. They are challenged. In verse 19, Jesus says, As many as I love, and we'll get there. That's a fascinating statement because the word he uses for love there isn't agapao, it's phileo. And God only has a phileo love, which is a more intimate, attractive love for believers. So this tells us that he, this church, as messed up as it is, is a church of believers. So we get to talk about the doctrine of the lukewarm believer. And then there's a call to listen to apply. There's the promise to the overcomers. And then a conclusion in, in, uh, at the end uh, to that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a crucial challenge to us because we can take that slippery slope into lukewarmness any day. We have to be diligent. We have to be focused. We have to be vigilant. Are we really positive, or are we just going through the motions? Is it just habit, or do we really have a deep passion to know the Word and to grow spiritually? 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, for the challenge that we find in this particular evaluation report. Father, we pray that as we study these things that we would be responsive to this challenge. Lord, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. These evaluation reports come from the Lord of the church, the head of the church, the Savior of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for everybody. He paid the penalty for every sin in human history. And it is a free gift. All we have to do to receive it is to believe it, to trust in Jesus Christ alone as our Savior. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, they would take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone, to trust in Him, to realize that only Jesus can provide salvation. And Father, we pray that we might not forget the lessons we've learned, but that God the Holy Spirit would drive them deep into our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.